people in the business world don't usually like talking to yogis. It's, it's uncomfortable for them. It seems way out of their paradigm. There's obviously some people that cross over. They might go to a yoga class here and there. Or they might listen to certain teachings. But the majority of people are like, how do I just get better at my work? And they don't really see yoga as that, the way to do that. Whereas I find yoga is a system of a set of methods, techniques, processes, a very systematic approach to improving oneself and manifesting one's fullest potential. That was Vish Chatterjee, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, thank you as always for giving the podcast a listen. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful you're here. Yes, I keep putting my heart into this show for you, but without listeners, there wouldn't even be a show. So you're actually doing me a favor in turn by giving me a platform to have these conversations. I learn something from every single one of them. So consider it a fair exchange, just like business. That's my lame segue because this week's guest is a yogi and executive coach who is integrating Eastern philosophy into corporate coaching to change the way business leaders think and operate. More to come on that shortly, but first, please subscribe to Dharma Talk. If you haven't done it already, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to the show. That way you get the new episode sent to you every single Thursday. And for those of you who've been listening for some time now, if you haven't already, please leave a rating and review. It really makes a big difference to get the show out there and let more people know about it. Of course, you can also share this specific episode with a friend if you feel like they could really benefit from it. And if you have the financial means to do so, please, please consider making a donation. It really helps. The show is costly to to keep up and I intend to keep it at a high quality. So every donation really helps. And with that being said, I would like to thank Ute Gottman and Dion Presenal, both of whom made a donation last week to support the show. I'm really grateful for both of you. Thank you so much. It really helps. And now I've got a few announcements this week. Do you want to level up your yoga practice? Well, check out the Henry Yoga app, my brand new 40-day, 40 minutes daily program for anyone looking to get serious about yoga. Sign up and get your first two classes free at henryyoga.com. Yogis, I am gearing up for my final set of workshops for 2019, which is going down at the Yoga Dojo in Richmond, Virginia, my hometown. The dates are November 22nd through 24th, And I'll be teaching a combination of rocket yoga classes and backbending workshops that weekend. To get the details for that one, head over to henrywins.com slash events and sign up there. Yogis, if you are looking for the perfect way to wrap up 2019 and lay a golden foundation for a beautiful 2020 to come, then please join me and my wife, Veronica Lombo, for our seven-day retreat to Bali. We're calling it Divine Connection because that's our vision for this retreat, that you'll be able to take the time to step away from your typical environment, step away from your social conditioning and your responsibilities, and get honed into the divine light within you. 
And how do we hope to achieve that? Well, every morning is going to begin with noble silence. This is prime time for self reflection, self inquiry, and inner work. Also, we will have a group meditation every day and two yoga classes one more rigorous vinyasa class and one more restorative hatha class. We're going to take care of all the food for you. You'll be provided three vegan, plant based, and refined sugar free meals a day. And we've also got some exciting adventures and excursions lined up, all included. Basically, we have an amazing experience lined up for you, something totally transformative and empowering. You just have to get yourself to Bali and then we'll take you through the rest. If this sounds appealing, please head over to henrywins.com slash Bali and you can find all the details there. Now back to the show. Allow me to introduce my guest. After a successful 20-year career as an executive and entrepreneur, Vish Chatterjee, at the business casual yogi on Instagram, is paying it forward as an East meets West executive coach. He's a certified meditation, Ayurveda, and yoga teacher, and believes the wisdom of yoga offers answers to many of the leadership questions of our day. His insights and experiences have culminated in his book, The Business Casual Yogi, which launched earlier this month. Not only a master of business administration, Vish is also a master storyteller, which really shows in this conversation. He takes us through facing his own mortality while trying to find himself in the Himalayas, which ultimately led to him meeting his lifelong teacher and now collaborator. He shares the life-changing advice that he got from the legendary kundalini teacher Gurmukh at a Hollywood gathering of recognized yogis. And he talks a bit about meeting people where they're at as a leader and a teacher, which naturally he's had to do as someone bringing an alternative philosophy into the modern Western culture. And finally, he shares what modern yogis, whether they are pursuing business or not, can learn from his new book, The Business Casual Yogi. If you like this episode, if you want to go deeper with Vish, then you can always go to dharmatalk.show and type Vish in the search bar. That's V-I-S-H. And you'll find all the notes and links for this episode, including Vish's recommended book. And, of course, I've got the running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk that also includes the books written by the authors I've interviewed. That's online at henrywins.com slash books. So if you're looking for your next read, head over there and pick out your next book. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with the business casual yogi himself, Vish Chatterjee. Vish, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on to talk about your very um, diverse background and all the exciting things you have coming up. So how are you today? I'm doing wonderful, uh, Henry. I'm, I'm really excited to be on your show here today. And I've been on a whirlwind of travels and I'm just home for the day today. And, and then tomorrow's my big uh, book launch. Uh, tomorrow as per our recording date today. Right. Yeah. So by the time that you are listening to this, Dharma Talkers, the book will be out and hopefully you'll get a little taste of what you might learn in that book through this conversation today. Uh, So Vish, um, 
you know, with the book coming out tomorrow, is there, are you in kind of a whirlwind of doing conversations like this and, and spreading the word? Yeah. In fact, I just came back uh, from a weekend up at uh, UC Berkeley where I gave a talk uh, entitled The Way of the Yogi, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Leaders. Uh, and it was not a yoga conference. It was an executive uh, business leadership conference. And uh, what's interesting, the business sector, there's a lot of interest, obviously, in mindfulness uh, in recent times. But I, I started to understand there's a lot of interest in, in spirituality and how that shows up in business and leadership. Uh, so, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, talks. I gave a talk at the Greater Good Party here in L.A. Uh, and all working professionals trying to find more balance, and more success and happiness in life, uh, which I believe the traditions that we're all studying here as yogis uh, has a lot of relevance for. Absolutely. Um, it's, I, I always tend to think that the more we can decompartmentalize our different passions and interests and, um, and pursuits, the more true they become. When we fully integrate into all the different aspects of life, that's when things can really be, be true in the way we express them. So, I mean, I think this is, that's a perfect parlay into my classic signature question for this podcast. What does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Mm -hmm. So it's a big question on multiple levels, one from a definition point of view and one on uh, the evolution of, of, of what my Dharma has been in my, uh, in my own life. Uh, so from a definition point of view, um, Dharma is, is a Sanskrit word. And it actually has a very broad meaning. And, and any word in Sanskrit has, uh, it probably takes about 100 English words to explain one <laughs> Sanskrit word. Very um, rich language. It's very rich. And, and in Western culture, we tend to just take a word uh, that's from Sanskrit and try to find one word that translates. And that word that we use now uh, in, in the yogi language is dharma, is purpose. Uh, but it's actually much more. Um, the Vedic system, the, the knowledge system that yoga comes from, uh, believes that we have four aims in life, being, uh, they call the pushatas, and there's basically dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. Uh, artha being, you know, earning an income, kama being fun, moksha, spiritual uh, freedom and liberation. But dharma very specifically is a collection of duties and responsibility that we have in this lifetime. Uh, so my definition of dharma is more around the duties and responsibilities that we have and then those responsibilities include honoring one's life purpose. Um, so I'd like to read a, uh, just a little passage from my book here that, where I define Dharma, and it might be your listeners might find this very interesting. Please. So uh, Dharma in and of itself is the idea of doing things in life that feel natural and easy to you. In an activity, if an activity intuitively does not make you happy, it is usually a misalignment of Dharma. Doing things in line with your dharma gives you the sense that you are in flow, like rowing with the current instead of against it. It includes services that you provide to your personal and professional worlds and to society. It is a balanced sense of duty that comes from a heartfelt place rather than from a forced place. And then within dharma, there are several types of dharma, the main one being the duty to your body, the duty to take care of your family, and the duty to honor inner purpose in contribution to humanity. So if we don't take care of our bodies, we get sick. If we don't take care of our families, we lose our, we lose our support structure. If we don't honor our inner calling, we also start to fall apart and feel miserable and, and suffer with all sorts of issues from that. 
And so honoring our inner purposes is a very important part of complete well-being. But what everybody wants in this life is, can I honor my dharma and earn money from it? And that isn't always the case. For some very blessed, lucky souls, you get to do what you love and earn from it. But for the rest of us, you almost have to have a platform of artha, of income, to support the space to actually honor your inner calling and do it maybe in a different uh, paradigm. For me, I'm very blessed because the two came together. Um, for 20 years of my career, I was a corporate executive in corporate America and an entrepreneur. That was my thing. And so even five years ago, if you'd asked me, what is your dharma? It was to become a CEO of a company. That's what I felt was uh, you know, providing goods and services to people that make their lives better. And I was very focused on developing products from cars to uh, computer gadgets to uh, software, all sorts of products that I felt, you know, delighted consumers. And I really felt my path was aligned in understanding consumer insight and making the right product for that insight. Um, through a series of adventures and uh, awakenings and serendipitous meetings with yogis, uh, I've come to realize that my dharma is actually in um, sharing the Vedic wisdom tradition with the business world specifically. Uh, so taking the teachings of yoga, of Ayurveda, of Vedic philosophy, and helping business people find more success and balance and more consciousness in their leadership journey in the business world. Well, I like how when you set up that story, you you spoke to the evolution of this understanding of your dharma. And to me, I think that the evolution is, in fact, part of the Dharma. Because if you think about it, had you not had that background and and that original understanding that your Dharma was to become a you know hyper powered executive of business, then you might not have wound up in the unique position that you're in to be able to share this type of thinking, this type of philosophy with the cohort of people that you're now influencing. So it all kind of works out perfectly, doesn't it? It all works out perfectly. And I, but I think at the time, you know, you have moments where you're like, wow, what did I do with my life? Or why did I do that? Or I took a wrong turn here. But every turn we make is, is part of our evolution and part of our journey to discover our purpose and, and manifest it more fully. And, you know, as I look back on my last 20 years of career, there's definitely a thread of understanding people and helping solve some unmet need for them. And it used to be through a product, and now it's through helping them understand themselves better through spiritual intelligence. So it, it, there's always this common thread. And you know, when I switched about two years ago full time into coaching, uh, teaching meditation, teaching yoga, teaching Ayurveda, and writing, it seems the only person surprised at my switch was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every one of my friends was like, "Well, obviously, you you you, you were born for that." Um, so sometimes people around us seem to know better than than we do. Um, what our inner calling really is. Yeah. And why do you think that is? And I agree with you, but why do you think that is? I think, you know, I mean, we're all, we're all spiritual beings at the end of the day, having a human experience. And sometimes our human experience is just, is so all encompassing uh, that we forget our spirituality inside. We we just live the human experience and and we're stuck with that. And, And that's sort of what colors our perspective. But when you meet people, you have a gut sense, and that comes from your spiritual intelligence. And so when you first get to know people, your gut sense is very clear what makes that person tick. You may not be able to articulate it. You may not be able to explain it. 
you know, people might not be able to guide you on that. But when you get it right, everybody intuitively knows and says, oh, yeah, you got it right. So it's not like I could ask any of those people 10 years ago, hey, what's my path? But when I reveal my path, everybody around me is like, oh, yeah, that's what it was. That's what I intuitively felt. I just couldn't articulate it at that time and that point in your journey. Right, right. You, you mentioned in a definition of Dharma that it's you're in Dharma, you're in alignment when things are flowing easily and your work makes you intuitively happy. It's like you're rowing with the current. But you and I probably both can agree that at times, even when you are fulfilling your Dharma, there is hard work and sometimes it takes grit. Would you agree with that? Yeah, completely. Um and I think this is this is a, a, a you know complex way to understand this, mm-hmm. but you know we if we have absolutely no sense of purpose at all in our lives, what happens is we we're sort of getting bashed around by the waves, right? The, the, you know going through the ocean of life is is traumatic. There's waves bashing you left, bashing you right, pushing you off direction, and every big wave that pushes you off course ends up setting a new direction, a new course. And so sometimes you might feel like you're white or you're just being tossed around the waves. So having some sense of purpose helps because at least you've picked a point on the horizon to navigate towards. And so as the waves bash you off course, you kind of know which way to course correct to get back on course. Uh, so I think having that longer term guiding light, even if it's an intuitive level and not an articulated level, that's very important. Then along the way, sometimes the bashing of the waves is trying to get you back on course. And you're fighting against it. Uh, so I found definitely my business life, I had a lot of you know very successful achievements and accomplishments, but they all came with incredible grit, determination, hard work, and struggle, and literally fighting, punching, and kicking the whole way through. Whereas now I feel like I'm accomplishing a lot more, but struggling a lot less. So I'm so uh, you know I'm kind of thinking it's about doing less. But achieving more. Uh-huh. And that's sort of the idea of flow that, yes, you still have to work hard, but you're working hard towards the right direction. And the universe is sort of giving you these guideposts and signs along the way. So it doesn't feel as gritty or as painful. I see. Well put. Well, it's clear to me already that you have a deep understanding of the way that, you know, our personal evolutions fit with the natural course of life. So with that wisdom that you have now that you're putting in your book and sharing with executives, turn, turn the mirror inward. Um, take me through the, the process of how you found this current um, work that you're doing. Like how, what was it? Was there a moment that you can pinpoint or a series of events that took you out of your previous path and onto the current one, even though, of course, they're the same path? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up in Hong Kong to an Indian family and uh, living the expat sort of environment in Hong Kong. We, we were surrounded by Western culture and Chinese culture. Uh, but every morning when I woke up, I saw my dad practicing yoga. That was the one thing he did consistently throughout his life until the day he died. And I used to always ask him, I said, Dad, you know, what is this, this yoga thing that you're doing? And he'd say, well, it's, this, this, it's, it's a very important exercise. And I started to learn from my dad that the reason he did yoga is he wanted to look young. 
That was his primary motivation. He wanted to be healthy and he wanted to look young. And even in his late 70s, he looked like he was in his 40s. I mean, it's quite incredible testament to the power of yoga. Um, but that was a vanity, vanity-based motivation to do yoga, which is fine. Um, but he was also a very philosophical man, and I used to, and used to share lots of Vedic wisdom, you know, when we're sitting around in the evening, uh, usually with a glass of whiskey in his hand. Um, but I once asked him, I said, "Dad, I want to learn yoga. Can you teach me?" And he said, "Well, son, you know, this is a very, very intricate science. It's complicated. It's not so simple." And you have to learn yoga from the right teacher. You have to find the right teacher to learn. It's not just something you just learn here and there. And he said, I'm not really qualified to teach you this. Uh, so one day when you get older, you should go to India and you should find a proper teacher. And so that sort of seed was planted at a young age. And when I finished uh, you know, college, I, I went to Northwestern, did my engineering degree and got a job in the automotive industry as an engineer. And I thought, before I start work, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to go find myself and find yoga. And so I went to India on a three-month you know, backpacking journey, sleeping in the, you know, railway platforms and hitchhiking rides with people sitting on the roofs of buses, um, literally living on, at that time, this is in the early nineties, living on uh, two to three US dollars a day. And I thought the best place to really find my spiritual nature was to go for a hike, go for a trek in the Himalayas. And so, and you know, when you're 20, you don't really think about consequences or what could go wrong. And I decided to go on a solo trek for four days in the Himalayas. And that is how I'm going to find myself. And as I got on to day three of this trek, uh, I was tre- trekking to Rupkun, this uh, frozen lake at high altitude. Um, I got into some pretty severe snow. And uh, it, you know, the trail got slippery, it got dangerous. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill myself doing this. I better turn around. And so I turned around, which was a safe thing to do. But then I got very anxious to sort of get out of this situation. I got very depressed and upset that I didn't reach the goal I wanted to. I didn't find myself, so to speak. And as I descended down below the tree line, and this is in the days before GPS, you know, compass and topo map, triangulating off peaks, I got below the tree line and I got lost, completely lost. I followed some random deer trail and ended up lost in the woods. And here I am trying to find myself, but completely lost in the Himalayas in India. And then I thought, okay, here's one way I can make this. I'm going to follow a stream because if I follow a stream, I'm going to have water. Uh, and a stream in India always leads to a river and a river eventually leads to a village because in India, villages are always by the river. And so I followed the stream downhill, which, which was okay, a good plan, until it got really steep and I got really tired. I was probably 10 hours into this journey now and um, I slipped and I fell about 40 feet busted my ankle, I think I must have sprained it pretty severely, and hurt my arm, and could no longer put weight on my on my leg. Um, so here I am now, lost in the Himalayas and hurt, uh, and completely in the middle of nowhere. So it was a journey for the rest of another probably five, eight hours of just tumbling, falling, getting even more bruised up, leaving my pack, pack up in the mountains there, until I got to a river that I crossed, and sure enough, uh, came upon a village, and the villagers took me in and, and uh, took care of me for, for about a week, actually, before I was able to, to you know, be well enough to even travel. And so disappointed, I thought, well, why don't I go to Rishikesh? Because that's the center of yoga and meditation. And uh, that's a good place to recover and recuperate. And so, uh, and, and this is how remote I was. The village had no access to any roads. You had to go out. Basically, you either walked out or got out on uh, horseback. And so they, they hired a 
I think it was more of a donkey. <laughs> I had a donkey <laughs> and I spent a, a good eight hour day on the back of a donkey with my poor ankle banging against the side of the mountain the whole way out. Uh, and then took a Jeep and then took a bus for a couple of days and ended up in Rishikesh. And so through the series of events and adventures, I go to Rishikesh to learn yoga. And um, I end up at the Yoga Nikitan Ashram, which is a very, very famous ashram right next to the Shivananda Ashram uh, near the Ganges in Rishikesh, you know, at the foothills of the Himalayas. And there, this smiling man shows up in front of the yoga hall. And it's this big yoga hall with this red velvety carpet and these cotton woven mats everywhere. And, you know, I'm sort of standing in yoga class. And this this little man, you know, big grin, piercing eyes and curly hair, uh, comes up and introduces himself as Vish. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> Vish, that's my name. Um, so his name is, is Vishwaketu. I'm Vishwajit. And he only spoke a few words of English. I mean, like he could say, go up, go down, turn left, turn right, breathe in, breathe out. That was kind of the extent of his words. But I just felt such a fascination and affinity for for this man. And I spent uh, two weeks there in the ashram, living the, the very austere ashram life and getting my first introduction to yoga. And I guess after getting lost in the Himalayas, I had literally found my teacher. Uh, and, and this teacher ended up helping me find myself. And so that's been a 20-year relationship of, uh, of learning from him, of becoming a dear friend of his, and, and he's my dear friend. And now we're collaborating on this book together. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so that's the full circle. He co-authored the book with you. Yeah, he's a. I mean, he he his English isn't at the point where he could write necessarily, but a lot of his teachings and wisdom are reflected in the book. I understand. So you um, you had this idea to go find yourself, and just at the moment where you thought that you had failed your mission, the steps were revealed. Yeah, and very early steps because I, even though I was studying in a traditional ashram environment and in, you know, from a, a Himalayan yoga master, somebody that had himself studied in the guru lineage tradition in the forest of the Himalayas, in the Nath lineage specifically, um, I still, even with these, these great blessings of meeting a teacher like that, I was still insistent that my life is in the business world. So I went, you know, came back to the U.S. after those travels and started my corporate career uh, and, you know, spent 20 years in corporate America, rising up the ranks and, and coming into leadership positions, but just maintaining a daily morning yoga practice. That, that was my thing. And, uh, and, you and know, what did that yoga practice entail? Well, it started with a, you know, when you come back from India, it's a very disciplined hour, hour and a half morning practice of chanting, pranayama, you know, asana, shavasana, and a good meditation. And as business life took over and things got busier and busier, I would, you know, call up Vishwaketu and say, uh, Vishwaketu, I, I don't have time for an hour and a half. I'm going to do an hour, you know, and then it would be a call a few a year or two later. Uh, I don't have time for a 30 minute practice. I have 12 minutes. What can I do in 12 minutes? <laughs> so he would write out these little programs. He was so sweet. He'd write out these little programs for me. He'd say, okay, here's a 12 minute yoga program for you, Vish. Mm -hmm. So. So, so yeah, for, it became you know, 12 minutes and then it became sporadic along the way. And it wasn't until about three years ago that I, when I exited the corporate path that my practice much more uh, diligent and longer and daily than, than it was similar to what it was 20 years ago in a way. Mm -hmm. And did you find that there were repercussions when you started to cut back on, the, on your sadhana? 
Well, the amount of stress and chaos and difficult interactions that happen in in leadership in a, in a corporate setting, you know, to recover from that requires a much deeper side and a much deeper practice. If you're using yoga as that compensating mechanism, uh, the problem is when when the going gets tough, you <laughs> you stop going to yoga. Uh, unfortunately, that's what happens. And you know, had I been more diligent, there could have been a lot lot of different outcomes from that in terms of my stress and my health. Um, but you know, you do what you can. Everybody's at a different place at a different time in their lives. But now I know very clearly that the the yoga practice is central to developing senses that help you in the business world. Actually. Mm-hmm. And so what was it that ended up uh, leading you to leave the corporate world? So I, uh, I was in the auto industry. I was an executive and uh, first an engineer in the auto industry. Then I went back to school and did my, uh, my MBA and then went into the executive ranks of the automotive industry all the way till 2008, where I jumped out of autos into tech. And in the tech industry, I ended up starting several big businesses, uh, one of them that you know, ended up becoming a $200 million a year business, uh, and then recruited to another company where I in two years, our, our, our work, uh, we ended up quintupling the stock price, so a 5x gross in stock price. And from that, I took a cash out exit and decided to start my own company, um, an Internet of Things startup. And I ran that company for a few years with co-founder, the two of us co-founded it. And um, things seemed good at first. We built an early product. We got early revenue. We had uh, you know a lot of interested big name customers that were, that were uh, paying for the product. And then things got really ugly when funding time came around. We, we were fundraising and, uh, you know, the investors just for whatever reason did not like my co-founder and uh, it was really difficult. And so they asked me uh, to take him out of the company uh, through our board. And, and this was really hard because he was the brains of the, of the technology and my dear friend. And then here I was being asked to do something awful to a dear friend. And, you know, I sort of like the business mind versus the, um, yogic mind and my business mind overruled. I said, all right, this is what I have to do. So I was awful to this friend of mine, kicked him out of the company, stripped him of his equity, pulled him off the board, restructured the company. And through this crazy implosion, um, I was so stressed out. I went to a retreat with Vishwa Ketu up in, uh, up in the Laurentian mountains in Canada. And we we're going for a walk. And I said, uh, Vishwa Ketu, I'm having such a hard time with my business. Like it just feels like my world is falling apart. I don't know what to do. And, you know, these yogis, right, they, they know. So he sort of looked <laughs> at me and he smiled and he said, oh, Vishwajit, you do more yoga business, your business will be okay. And then we continued walking and I thought, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yoga business? Yeah, what, this guy wants me to open a yoga studio or what? Or maybe he just wants me to help him. So. <laughs> So I thought, okay, you know, and I started helping him out and I started, you know, getting more involved with, with his own uh, marketing and branding and positioning. And, and uh, you know, he founded a yoga ashram in, in Rishikesh. So I helped advise him along the way. And of course he, then he, you know, he's a, ma- a major teacher at Bhakti Fest, the big, the big yoga festival in Joshua Tree in, yes. in California. And so he was coming to Bhakti Fest to teach. And I thought, hey, you know, here's my yoga business. Why don't I just volunteer and be his assistant? So uh, he comes to LA and I'm, you know, carrying his bags around, opening doors for him, driving him around town. And when he came about, I think this was about three years ago, three or four years ago, he came to Bhakti Fest to teach and Gurmukh Khalsa, this, you know, this um, amazing, yeah, amazing mother of Kundalini yoga uh, invited us for dinner, invited him for dinner. And he asked if he could bring me and my wife along as guests. 
So we go to meet Gurmukh for dinner. And this is me doing my yoga business, driving Vishwaketu to, to dinner with Gurmukh and sort of chaperoning him. And we go to this fancy home in the Hollywood Hills of one of her students. And there's all these yoga celebrities. The CEO of Wanderlust is there. And Arjuna, the drummer for Krishna Das, is there. And Gurmukh, of course, in her flowing robes and turban. And Vishwaketu introduced me. So this is my friend Vish. And, you know, I'm wearing my usual business casual clothes, right? Everyone else is in yoga clothes. And uh, Gurmukh is not phased by my outward appearance. She, she, she says, nice to meet you, Vish. Where do you teach? And I sort of stared at her blankly. I uh, teach. And I was kind of looking behind me, wondering who she's talking to. Is, is me? And I said, I'm not a teacher. I, I don't teach. I'm a, I'm a business guy. I start companies. I start divisions. I'm, a, you know, I'm running a startup right now. I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm, I'm just a student. I'm a student of this guy, actually. And she looked at me like I was some kid in second grade giving the wrong answer in school. You know, she, she's like, <laughs> she, she, it's like she stared into my soul and read a different answer. And she sort of, you know, wagged her finger at me and said, Vish, how can you not teach? You have so much to share with this world. You must not die this lifetime just being a student. You must go and teach. And of course, Vishwaketu wow. looks at me, you know, patient yogi, says, oh, so Vishwajit, you come teach at my next retreat, okay? <laughs> so what am I going to say? Okay, sure. <laughs> so I taught at his next retreat. And uh, I think it was very clear when I taught. Um, and I did a class on Sankalpa Shakti, manifesting your goals, mm. um, using Sankalpa Shakti. And I was on fire. I mean, that people could see it, like this different being sort of came out of me. And that was when things started shifting in my life where, you know, things in the startup started falling apart. I had random synchronicity. We call it synchronicity, but to me it was very random. Somebody reached out and said, hey, I just got promoted to a VP of product. Uh, will you come? At, would you mind coming and coaching me? And I was like, I don't know what this coaching thing is, but sure, I'm, I'm up for it, right? Entrepreneur, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, when, I met to met the, when I went to meet the CEO of that company, when he asked me my approach and I shared all the businessy product management, PL approach kind of things, he was yawning, literally yawning. And when he said, what else do you do? And I started sharing some of my spiritual you know, background. He said, that's what we need. You bring that to the table, you're hired as a coach. Um, so that was sort of the main kind of a big, big opening up that here's a guy who had sold his last company for $300 million dollars telling me that he needed more of a spiritual training for his executives. Um, and so I started coaching and then little by little, I started getting introduced to other people. People started referring me and all of a sudden I had this coaching business organically growing. And then uh, on the side, the startup that was imploding. And so I decided to double down on the, on the uh, coaching side. And so I thought, you know, I need to go learn. I need to go study and really steep myself in these traditions that I've cursorily been following and learning for the last 20 years, but I want to go deeper. So I first went to UC Berkeley and did their executive coaching training program, which was an incredibly spiritual experience, actually, um, even though it was targeted at executives and executive coaching. Then I went to the Chopra Center and did their Ayurveda training, and I did their meditation teacher training as well. So I became a certified meditation Ayurveda teacher through, uh, through the Chopra Center. And then, of course, I went back to India, back to Rishikesh, to the ashram that I've been, you know, help, helped helped advise on and sit on the board of, I went as a student, as a sadhak, uh, for a 200-hour yoga teacher training under Vishwaketu. 
which is quite an experience to now come down at the at the base level. So I go to Rishikesh for having five been weeks. his private student, essentially. Yeah, being a private student and having been an advisor to him, and, and <laughs> you know, sitting on the board of the ashram, um, and then going in as a student, uh, like everybody else, and reduced to you know the the difficulties and challenges you go through as a as a student of yoga teacher training, a very rigorous ashram program in Rishikesh. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, getting up at 4.30 every morning for meditation and then, you know, hour and 45 minute yoga practice and then fire puja every morning and then you get to breakfast <laughs> and then all day of anatomy and learning and spiritual knowledge and, you know, kirtan in the evening, just this grueling five-week schedule. And four days to graduation, I'm going for a walk along the Ganga in the, that forest area. If anybody knows Rishikesh, there's a hole in the wall by the police station if you go through the hole in the wall of the police station, you end up in this beautiful uh, forest walk by the Ganga River, uh, where all the sadhus and babas live in the cave, you know, in, in huts all around. As so I'm going for a walk, the sun is setting, the river is flowing, this massive, beautiful Ganga River. And on from the other direction comes this woman with a turban and flowing robes. And as she comes closer, it's Gurmuk. <laughs> I'm like, your guardian Gurmuk? angel, your kundalini guardian angel. <laughs> Like Gurmuk, she's back. She's back. So I go up to her. I say, Gurmuk, this is incredible. You know, I met you in LA about a year and a half ago, and you completely changed my life. You, 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 you told me I should go into teaching, and and you know, why am I not a teacher? And here I am completing my yoga teacher training in in Rishikesh. And so she gave me this huge hug, and she was, you know, she, I'm so proud of you. And she said, I will be at your graduation. And so four days later, she came to the ashram and presided over some of the graduation ceremonies and gave me a blessing. And, uh, you know, it's just just beautiful how, how all this worked out. And now the full circle comes forward because in the book, she um, wrote a testimonial, which I'll read to you. She said, words do not have the capacity to express my love and respect for Yogrishi Vishwaketu and Vishchatterjee. They have the ability to bring the heavens to the earth and the earth to the heavens. That, div- that divine balance I have felt every time I have been in Yogrishi Vishwaketu's class. From Gurmukh. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, it almost sounds like like mythology, how poetic that, that story unfolded. But, I mean, of course I believe you. And Gurmukh is amazing. So I, I love that you got her blessing. Having learned, you know, at that point that you made the decision to double down on your learning, get official, get certified after studying Ayurveda and meditation at the, the Chopra Center and then going and get getting your yoga certification from the ashram in Rishikesh that you had helped to establish, what then does that um what, what then does that do for how you integrate these practices into something that you can package and present to you know, the lay person or not necessarily the lay person, that's the wrong term, but your past version of yourself that you came from. Well, I, 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 I position myself as an East meets West coach because I combine the Western MBA tradition, for, for lack of a better word, the MBA tradition, the MBA wisdom and learning the, you know, 20 years of corporate experience and, and speaking that language and, and being one with that particular tribe of mine. In fact, I feel like the corporate executive is, is my tribe in a lot of ways. I know I've been in their shoes. I've been in their uh, stressful situations. I've felt that heartache and that sort of spiritual emptiness that, that comes sometimes in, in working in the corporate world. 
combined with Eastern traditions that is of my culture. I'm, I'm Indian by birth and origin, uh, by lineage. I'm a Kulin Brahmin, which is the, the lineage of the, the keepers of the knowledge. Uh, and then having studied under the Nath lineage of Vishwaketu and, and having studied Ayurveda. Um, so I'm bringing all these together, this East meets West tradition. And the best way to describe it for a yoga audience is being a Vedic counselor. So um, recently, I've also been going deeper f- uh, for the last few years into Jyotish, the, the, the Vedic astrology mm-hmm. system. And so that's helped me really understand the framework here where given the teachings and knowledge that we have as yogis, we have a lot of powerful insight to offer people on their journey. And as I said, everyone's on a spiritual journey. They just don't know it. As a spiritual practitioner, you start to help open that up in people. So I find that I end up opening up a spiritual journey for people in a lot of ways uh, from that coaching approach. So people in the business world don't usually like talking to yogis. It's, it's uncomfortable for them. It seems way out of their paradigm. There's obviously some people that cross over. They might go to a yoga class here and there. Or they might listen to certain teachings. But the majority of people are like, how do I just get better at my work? And they don't really see yoga as that, the way to do that. Whereas I find yoga is a system of a set of methods, techniques, processes, a very systematic approach to improving oneself and manifesting one's fullest potential. That's exactly what something the business world wants to do. So this technology actually works for them. Um, And so the way I'm able to approach it is to start where they're at, meet them where they're at. So I had a client, for instance, once who's a, a national sales director for a large medical devices company. And he was struggling with improving sales. So we were looking at margin structure. We were looking at the sales numbers and how to hit targets and goals. Then we started looking at the behaviors of different members of his team and organizational structure um, and how to interact with team members better, how to show up in a sales pitch better. And by session six, he asked me, hey, Vish, when are you going to do that stuff with the planets? You know, that that stuff you do with the planets? (laughs) Yeah, where's was, my natal chart reading? Yeah, and I was like, what, what do you mean planets? You know, because I, I didn't know he had that context. And he said, you know, the friend who referred me to you uh, said you had done his something to do with planets when he was born. I said, ah, you want you want me to look at your chart? So we pulled up his astrology chart, and there I was with a senior executive in corporate America going through his natal chart and helping him understand um, the way he sees the world and the, the way he processes uh, interactions and what the corporate sales journey how it feeds into his overall life purpose and life direction and understanding where the challenges were going to come, the timing of different potential events, when would be the right time to try and get a promotion. So it, it just all came together from PNL to, you know, birth chart. Yeah, it's very cool. And uh, I, I can totally see what you mean by that, that your, your background having come from their, their shoes essentially gives them the permission to sort of let their guard down and say, okay, I can trust this person. And maybe, maybe just maybe my horizons can be expanded beyond what I know now. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Have you gotten into this, into a situation where you felt like because of your outlook and your spiritual practice, you are not comfortable engaging with a certain uh, prospect or client because you didn't feel that their values were aligned to yours. Has, has that kind of situation ar- arisen for you? Well, it happens all the time, right? Because because we all have a different set of values, and and if we only if we only work with the people that share similar values, we, we're sort of not doing the work on a broader scale. Um, so yes, I mean, most of the time uh, people have a different value system, but all of our values change over time. I had a different value system, um, you know. 
if a Vedic astrologer had come to me five years ago, I probably would have punched him in the face. It just, it just seemed like such, such a wacko, weird uh, system. It just didn't yeah. make sense to me. I didn't know. Whereas now all of a sudden I'm, I'm a practitioner of it. So everybody's at a different place and their value system, you know, changes over time and over lifetimes. And so the thing is to meet somebody where they're at, and, you know, have compassion for where they are, they are at in their journey. Um, you know, I've met people, I, I had an Indian client, actually a very senior executive of a, of a large Indian media company heading up the North American operation. And he had just been transferred from India, from Bombay. And we were talking about a lot of issues he was having with um, building, building the team and then getting the funding from the chairman of the company to build and grow uh, a new division that he was managing. And so we started talking about the different interactions he was having with the chairman of the company. And these things just kept coming up like this pattern almost, like a karmic pattern. And when I started asking him where these patterns first, you know, where he might have first seen them in life, he came right back to childhood and started to see these patterns in his own father. And so there was his father and chairman situation, and they were all linked in his, you know, they're all this, this consistent pattern. So I said, look, this is a karmic thing. Like you're, it's a karmic thing that you're struggling with. And we have to break through this particular um, sanskara, so to speak, this, this groove that's carved in your, in your journey. And he said to me, oh yeah, yeah, I know all about karma. I said, great, tell me about it. You know, I'm thinking he's an Indian guy. I'm sure he understands multiple lifetimes and the karma and the work we do and the sanskaras from previous lifetimes. And he said to me, he says, yeah, I believe in karma. It's, it all makes sense. What you do, it, it goes around, comes around. But the thing is, the karma only happens in one lifetime. He was very specific. He says, karma happens in one lifetime. That's it. So I said, what about He made a point lifetime? of explicitly saying that to you. Yeah. It's all in one oh, lifetime. Oh, wow. Okay. Then, very clear. So I said, okay, so the, what about last life? He said, there's no last life. There's no last life. There's no future life. It's just this life. So I said, okay, we'll work with that. I, I mean, I don't, I don't need to prove to him or debate him, you know, the, the concept of multiple lifetimes. I could just say, okay, if it's in this lifetime, how do we break this pattern? Right. And by breaking that pattern for him, he was able to have more success in his business. And little by little, who knows what understanding he'll come to, but he was able to get to a place of more balance by getting through a block that was showing up for him in his paradigm in this lifetime. And for a broader paradigm, looking at his chart, it's obviously been over multiple lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's like, if you are being of service to him, then it serves no one to be so rigid in your belief system that you're not even willing to like meet him where he, where he's at. Exactly. That's what all the gurus do for us, right? When you meet yeah. a guru, he doesn't judge us for where we are in our journey. Right. Right. He meets us where we're at and, and, and supports us. And, you know, he or she or it brings us along on the journey, uh, you know, meeting us exactly where we're at, at this point of our spiritual evolution. Yeah. That, that's what it takes to, to be a teacher in mm -hmm. essence. So let's talk about the book. Um, who, who is the book for? What, what can people expect to find in the book? And um, yeah, let's start with that. So the book is actually for anybody. It, I, I would say it's, it's a manual for complete well-being using the Vedic knowledge system, the Vedic tradition as a whole. So what's very unique about the book is it combines Vedic philosophy and Ayurveda and yoga and the complete system of yoga into one book. Um, you know, and, and I think the inspiration for the book came about when business people would ask me, can you recommend a good book on yoga? And I had a hard time answering that because most of the yoga books out there were either too esoteric mm -hmm. 
or too focused on the physical asana practice and not on the whole system. Uh-huh. And if it did focus on all eight limbs, it didn't bring in the Ayurveda tradition or the Vedic, you know, Vedanta tradition. Uh, so trying to combine all that. So I think first and foremost for yogis, this book is, you know, the combination of all the different frameworks and traditions that umbrella the yoga tradition. I think that's the first thing. And to make sure I got it right, I partnered with Yogi Shivishwaketu because he's the voice of the source. Him as a, uh, not only a Himalayan yogi having trained in the Nath lineage, but also having done his PhD in yoga, I can almost go to him and ask him any interpretation I have of anything. And he'll tell me, here's what fits into the original texts. Um, so I think it provides a lot of value for the yogi. Now, the thing is, my credibility is in the business world. I'm, I'm, I'm respected and known and have achievements in the business world that business people respect. And so, and that's the world that I feel is completely lacking in these consciousness practices. And so we've positioned the book for the business world. And a part of that is in the title, The Business Casual Yogi, is taking these teachings and putting them in a language and a context that makes sense to somebody who is a working professional, Mm -hmm. somebody who commutes every day back to and from the office, works in a cubicle, has a hierarchy of management structures, trying to improve themselves in their business. We've positioned it for that. So it's Mm -hmm. the business casual yogi, take charge of your body, mind, and career. Um, So it's targeted the business world, the working world, but the teachings in it are very powerful and I think unique even in the yoga world. And so, and so Vishwaketu and I sort of combine that, me the MBA with 20 years of corporate America and he the you know, Himalayan yogi with a PhD kind of coming together and offering this, uh, this wisdom tradition in, in one volume. Beautiful. I, I love it. And um, I echo your sentiments. I can't think of, a, of another book that it comes to mind that encapsulates the yoga teachings and the related um, sort of tangential fields in, in one uh, plain English book. So good for you and, and good for you and your teacher for coming together to provide that as a product or, or service really to, to the modern professional world and, and the yogi world. Thank you. Is there one, um, is there one key message or one key takeaway that you would leave our audience with, um, as kind of a taste of the book and maybe you can do one for potentially the, the business type focused people and one for the more yoga type focused people. Hmm. So for the business audience, um, you know, there was always this idea that, you know, back in the old days of business, who was the smartest person in the room and who could take names and, you know, drive a result. So it was all about intelligence, IQ, and just, being a hard driving, hard ass. Like that was the, the, the skill and the quality. And I came up through the automotive industry. So that was a skill that I exemplified. I was, you know, I, I remember when I first moved to the tech industry, people used to tell me, Vish, you're hitting all the numbers, you're hitting the results, you're blowing things out of the water, but there's too many people crying at the end of your meetings. Like you can't leave people in tears all the time. Wow. So, so I had to soften from the auto industry to the tech industry because, you know, it's West Coast, California, people are a little bit more sensitive. <laughs> um, and, and the quality that was coming out at that time about 10 years ago in California was the idea of emotional intelligence. So you were going from just, you know, intellectual horsepower, intelligence purely to emotional intelligence. And so they went from e- IQ to EQ. Mm-hmm. And the next paradigm that I'm seeing coming out today now, I mean, I was just at Berkeley in a leadership conference, you know, cutting edge thinking thought leaders of business, executives from you know major companies, you, you name the tech company, they were there. And they're talking now about spiritual intelligence mm-hmm. in business. 
So we've gone from IQ to EQ to SQ, spiritual intelligence. And I believe the Vedic system is the original integrated system to cultivate spiritual intelligence. So when you take the entire framework together, it's a systematic way to improve your spiritual intelligence. And as a result, you'll be better, a better leader. You'll relate to people in the world and the universe around you in a better way. Um, but you also find a lot more happiness and success and balance. So that's sort of the business uh, side of things. I love it. And for the yogi, I think one of the insights in the book that, you know, as part of my research when I was studying the idea of the upaguru, and there's a guru, which we all have teachers in our lives, but the upaguru, the best way to explain it is the super guru. And the super guru is actually inside all of us. So there is a, you know, in innately knowledgeable, insightful, all intelligent leader and teacher that is inside of us. And that is the upaguru. And so any guru's role is to be a servant to facilitate you to connect to your inner teacher. And I think in the yoga world, what we tend to do is we find a teacher and we ascribe all the intelligence wisdom to that teacher and we become subservient to that teacher. And I think what this book is trying to explain and do is tell you, look, the, the wisdom's inside of you. So use these technologies and techniques to connect to your inner teacher and that inner wisdom will then flow and you become your own teacher. And so the book outlines a, a, a practice and a method that requires you to just be home and do your practice. It doesn't require you to have punch cards or go to a yoga studio or find a guru or find a teacher. Just do your own work through these series of techniques. Um, so I think that's the message for the yogis is, um, you know, take back the guru back into yourself. And if you have a guru in your life, test whether they're serving to connect you to your inner guru. Are they facilitating to be a dispeller of darkness in your life? Or are they usurping this position as sort of taking you over in this sort of uh, superior to subservient relationship? So the, the, the guru, you know, as a coach, you know, I, it's, it's funny, I'm a coach executive coach. And my family in India keeps calling me a guru. They're like, oh, he's a guru in California. And I'm like, I'm not a guru. That's like a loaded word. I'm not some like being that knows all. But I realized they're actually what they're saying. You know, the original translation of guru is I serve to facilitate connection to light in my clients. I'm in service to them. I'm not, I'm not at a superior level to them. And I think that's the important understanding that comes out in this book is, is uh, what relationship you have to your inner teacher and to the person you might call a guru in your life. It's beautiful, beautiful words. Um, we we all need to find our inner teacher. I couldn't agree with you more. And the tides seem to be shifting. You know that there was a period of time where we were, as a culture, latching on to the other as a teacher. But it does seem that collectively the consciousness is moving toward understanding that we all do have that inner light inside. And I think that's what Gormuk was getting at when she told you, you can't go on your entire life being just a student. She urged you to be a teacher, I think, not only for others, but also for yourself. Yeah, that's that's right. I, th I think, and, and that has to come from a, a journey of exploration. And, and like you said, there's some grit involved in that whole journey. There's there's heartache, there's pain, there's difficulty. You go through that, but that's part of our, our evolution. Um, the other angle for this book that's very interesting is I was um, I was invited to give an all instructor webinar at the Chopra Center, and so they have about three thousand certified instructors, and and I gave a webinar um, to the whole group. And the director of certifications actually held up my book and said that this is a, a required reading for all instructors. And the reason being is that as 
a practitioner of yoga, all of us, wherever we're teaching, we are going to be teaching people in the working world. So if you operate a yoga studio or yoga coaching business or, you know, the work that you're doing, all these different things, private sessions, group sessions, all of it, granted, there will be people in your audience that are coming from the business world. And there's this divide between the business world and the yoga world. And I believe that divide can be bridged with the right language and the right context. And so if anything, this book will help you understand the mentality and context of the business world and the corporate working world to bridge that gap and share your language in the right way and share yoga in the right context uh, to, to help you in your own business. Yeah. And then we can all just be a little bit more easily connected with, and that's, that's always a good thing. Right. Exactly. Well, Vish, I think now is the perfect time for us to transition into the final section of this interview. I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. This is called the prana round. Okay. Okay. Let me take a deep breath before the uh, deep pranic breath before the prana round, right? Bring in all the prana. (laughs) I heard it. That sounded like a good one. You ready? Yeah. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Connection. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Shavasana or Padmasana. So both uh, the lying down relaxation at the end of yoga practice or uh, Padmasana, because that's where I feel we integrate the entire system into our being. Excellent. What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? Mm, This is one from Vishwaketu. Firstly, listen to your body. Secondly, listen to me. Nice. I like that. That's all about getting you into that inner teacher. Yeah. Firstly, listen to your body. Secondly, listen to me. Recommend one book, modern or ancient, for our audience obviously aside from the business casual yogi, which will be linked in the show notes. Let's see. Um, I was, I I just have so many books that, that have inspired me along the way. It's, it's hard to, to pick one. Um, I would definitely say autobiography of a yogi was one of those absolutely life changing books. Okay. Um, and used to be the first book I would recommend to somebody. Autobiography of a Yogi. Okay, by Yogananda. By Yogananda. Is yoga for everyone? It's for everyone who's ready to evolve on their spiritual journey. All right. But I don't think it's I don't think it's for everyone. It's you know well first of all there's different types of yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, so different types of yoga for different people, for sure, but not everybody's ready for that journey. Um, so it's, it's, it's for everyone who's ready for the journey. All right. I like that answer. Final question for you, Vish, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? That is so kind of you. I always forget to add that part. (laughs) Um, so the businesscasualyogi.com is the website for the book. That's one place to go look learn about the book a bit more. Um, I'm on Instagram as the business casual yogi. It's still early, but I'm building that up. Uh, for the business people, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that seems to be the, the place I connect the most with my audience. Um, I'm also on Facebook as the business casual yogi. 
Um, and of course, from any of those sources, you can get through to me. Amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with me and the Dharma Talk community. So thank you for that. And I very much look forward to reading your book. It was a lovely conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and thank you for having me on the show and uh, best of luck to you. And you, as I said to you before we even got started, you have just the incredible uh, yoga radio voice <laughs> full of kindness and sweetness and heart. It, it's just beautiful. I think your your sadhana comes through in your voice. It's, it's very beautiful. Thank you That's for that. very kind. Thank you. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.